All right. Good morning, guys. Uh, Merry Christmas. I hope you guys are looking forward to the week. This morning, we get to continue in our I Am series. And um, this week, we're going to be looking at, at really what, what most people or most scholars would consider the last of the I Am statements. There is another one. We're going to be looking at it next week. Uh, it's a sneaky one. But this is kind of the last of the recognized I Am statements where Jesus says, I Am, followed up with a profound um, and seemingly simple statement that gives us tremendous insight into who He is and and um, and who we are. We have, over the course of this series, looked at a number of profound statements. He said, I am the bread of life, basically saying that he is what truly nourishes and satisfies. He said, I am the light of the world, the giver of life and warmth and sight and true wisdom. He said, I am the door or the sheep gate. He is the only door to safety and, in fact, the only refuge that is truly safe in the universe. He said, I am the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. I call my sheep and they know my voice and I know their name, right? He is the one who goes before us, who is truly trustworthy to follow, the one who has demonstrated his trustworthiness by actually dying and rising again for us. And he said, I am the resurrection and the life. His very presence is the promise that death is not final and that um, there is a future. And last week we looked at this statement, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And we kind of unpacked what, what he was saying there. He was saying, I am the way home. Your deepest desires for home are satisfied in me, and, and I'm going home. I'm going to this place to prepare a place for you so that you can come home. His presence is home, the place we truly want to be and the person we truly want to be with. This week we get to look at, at the statement where he says, I am the true vine. So last week he, he basically said, I go to prepare a place for you. And this week um, we're going to be looking at how he prepares us for that place. This is really in the same discourse as, as last week's. It's this, these chapters kind of make up one long dialogue that, that Jesus has with his disciples on the night of his betrayal. And so um, he's continuing the thoughts that we unpacked last week. And this week's I Am statement doesn't just give us insight into Jesus. It really gives us insight into how the whole Godhead is involved in this process. So let's take a look at it. We're going to John chapter 15. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, grab one off the floor in front of you. Uh, and uh, if you're using one of our Bibles, we're going to page 901, John chapter 15. If you have uh, a phone or a, an iPad or whatever, go ahead and open up the app and let's flip over to John chapter 15. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 11. All right, 1 through 11. I am the true vine. And my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this is my Father glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. All right, previously, as we've looked at, Jesus has used imagery that is very familiar with his hearers. He has um, talked about the bakery. He has talked about what it's like to be um, a shepherd or, or uh, in, a, in a sheepfold, right? This time he uses the imagery of a vineyard. And he starts out by saying, I am the true vine. 
Now, vines are, understandably, the most important part of a vineyard. So if you think about it, it's really not the grapes that are the most important part of a vineyard. It's the vine, right? Uh, The vine determines the quantity and the quality of the fruit. Now, from a very earthly perspective, vines live a very long time, right? Some of the best vines can, can live to be like 120 years old. Um, and, and these older vines are often the greatest treasures of the vineyard, right? The vine is, is the source of life for the vineyard. If there is no vine, there is no life. I mean, it makes a lot of sense, right? A branch with no vine is a dead branch. Not going to do a lot of good unless it's connected to the vine. So what that means is that all true growth, all fruit actually comes from the vine, not from the branches, right? The vine is the source. So the point of this, when he says, I am the true vine, um, not a great mystery. I mean, it's, it's, it's not, it doesn't take a whole lot of work to unpack this. What he's saying is, is very simply that he is the source of our life, that, that he is the source of our true vitality, that he is the source of, of, of what makes life fruitful, and he is the only true source. We may look at a lot of things and turn to a lot of other things, but Ultimately, he is the only true vine. And in our relationship with him, we're completely dependent on him. He's not dependent on us. The vine is not dependent on the branches. The branches are dependent on the vine, right? So we are completely dependent on him. He isn't the one who needs or takes. We are. He is the one who gives. He gives true life and true energy and vibrancy and he makes fruitfulness possible. What's interesting about this I am statement, though, is in some ways his part is the shortest, and he goes on to actually, for the first time, actually talk about his father and, and us. So he goes on and he says about his father that he is the vine dresser, right? The vine is the most important part of the, of the vineyard, but there will be no healthy vine without a vine dresser. Jesus is the vine, and the father is the vine dresser. Now, the vine dresser has really one job in the vineyard. His job is to take care of the vine. And what that means is his job is to come along and assess the health of the branches. So he is going to do that primarily through pruning. He cuts away the shoots that take life but don't give fruit. Why? Because those branches sap energy out of the rest of the vine. And when the vine is is investing energy into those branches, um, the other fruit becomes less fruitful, right? And so the vine dresser will cut away branches that are simply sapping life or are are dead. They also prune fruitful branches to increase both the quantity and the quality of the fruit. So sometimes it might simply be a, a trimming or a topping where they will come and, and trim the, the branch back slightly with the purpose of, of increasing the fruit. Sometimes the vine dresser will actually come and trim away all new growth on the vine, actually for the purpose of reducing its fruitfulness for a season so it can become more fruitful later. Sometimes if the disease or, or a struggle has infested the branch He'll be more drastic and cut it back almost all the way to the vine for the purpose of protecting it and healing it and ultimately seeing it become fruitful. See, a careful vine dresser wounds the plant to heal the plant. A careful vine dresser will will carefully inflict wounds on the plant that will ensure greater health and fruitfulness. So what's the point here? The point is that the Father, Jesus is the vine. He's the source of life, the one that we are connected to. He's our Savior. Um, The Father, as the vine dresser, is absolutely concerned with the health of the entire plant. 
with the health of the whole vine. And, and in this case, uh, that would refer to the church, the, the people of God, not the building, and not even just a single gathering, but, but the people of God gathered around the Son of God. Now, there are branches that he removes. And I'll address that briefly. There are branches that are removed, and these are dead branches. Now, to help us understand this, I think we need to remember the context in which Jesus is speaking. Remember, this is the same night that, that he just gave the, the message about going home, right? Um, where his disciples were so troubled and, and full of anxiety. And he's like, don't be full of anxiety. Um, I'm, I'm going to take you home, right? And, and right before that, he had the Last Supper where he washed the disciples' feet. Now, remember what happened at the Last, last Supper? He revealed to his disciples that one of them would betray him. That one of them was, in fact, not a true disciple. One of them wasn't clean. That was the language he used at the Last Supper. So he went around and washed their feet. He said, if you are clean, all I need to do is wash your feet. If you're not clean, then this isn't going to do you any good. And what he was saying was, most of you have believed in me. Most of you are truly my disciples. You have, you have come to believe in me and trust in me, but there's one of you who hasn't. There's, there's one here, Judas, who is about to betray me. He was a disciple with the disciples. He was there for years, and no one suspected that he was any different. But the bottom line was he didn't believe in Jesus. He was there, but he was there for his own purposes. He wanted to use Jesus for monetary gain and for um, political revolution. And in the end, betrayed Jesus to get his own end. Here's the thing. The Father will cut out the Judas branches. He will remove them um, from the, the, uh, the company of believers because they sap life and they're a danger to the whole. Now, some branches, in our metaphor, he just prunes. These are the living branches. These are, these are those that, that have believed in Jesus and have come to trust the finished work, the person and work of Christ, right? And these branches need care and pruning to move into greater fruitfulness. This is God basically at work um, with us and, and in us to change us, to free us from the unfruitfulness of sin, to free us from the unfruitfulness of, of our idolatries, our heart idolatries, where we're looking to things that aren't God to be God for us. We're looking things outside of God to do for us what only God can do. He is, he's trimming those things away. He's, he's, he's cutting away our pride. He's cutting away our dependence on things outside of Him. Why? So that we can bear fruit. See, in His grace, He loves us as we are. That's the message of the gospel. You don't have to do anything to make God love you. You don't have to make yourself more attractive to God because he's not attracted to you because of your beauty. He chooses to love you. And in his choice to love you, he sent Jesus to save you. So in grace, he loves you as you are. And in grace, he will not leave you as you are. This is the process that the Bible refers to as discipline. The author of Hebrews puts it this way. Put the verses up on the screen. This is Hebrews chapter 12. He says, God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? God disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. You guys, I mean, there's no way around this. Discipline isn't fun. <laughs> Pruning is not the most enjoyable part of being on the vine, okay? When God comes along and says, it's time to trim, right? Or, or maybe it's time to actually cut back. Or, or maybe even it's time to reduce your fruitfulness for a season, so that later you can become more fruitful. Or when he says, I'm actually going to do some, some more major surgery here. I'm going to make some pretty significant cuts because that's time for me to remove this disease. It's time for me to make this major heart adjustment, right? It's not fun. See, discipline is the use of discomfort 
to bring healthy change. Isn't that what we do, parents? <laughs> Isn't that what discipline is? It, is? it is the use of discomfort in the life of our children to produce healthy change, right? It is for their good. It will produce holiness, the, the peaceable fruit of righteousness. Now catch this, you guys. Discipline isn't punishment. It's training. See, punishment is about rep- retribution. And we're flawed parents, and the reality is, is almost every parent at one point or another has punished their child. That was just a, an emotional backlash. You just had enough. You were at the end of your wit. You, you, and, and it was retribution, right? It was in the name of discipline, but what you did was actually more about you than them. It was more about you lashing out, you, more you being angry, right? But here's the thing. God never reaches the end of his patience. His discipline is never punishment. It's never about making you pay for your wrong. Discipline is about taking what is and making it healthier and stronger. He sees what Christ has started in you, and he will nurture it and treasure it and protect it and prune it so that it will grow. So the Father brings momentary suffering into our lives to gain, gain a greater good. And that momentary suffering can be anything. God uses all the circumstances of our life. Scripture talks about the kind of discipline that God uses is really a lot of times um, just looks like normal human suffering. But God's at work in every situation in our lives. That, that delay that you had on the way to work, that's God's discipline, not as punishment, God's discipline, right? That, that, that disappointment you had, that person who let you down, that seemingly random set of events that, that resulted in, in, in an outcome you didn't desire. God's hand is at work in all of those areas of discomfort if we simply have eyes to see it. And they will produce within us the peaceable fruit of righteousness because God is the one pruning. He works through our suffering to make us more fruitful. Now, what about the Spirit? We've talked about how the Godhead is involved in preparing us for home, right? He has prepared a place for us, and He is preparing us for that place. What about the Spirit, right? Jesus doesn't mention the Spirit in the passage that we read. Doesn't He have a part in this process? And the answer, of course, is yes. He's actually mentioned a little bit farther on in the passage. This is one of those unique passages where Jesus is starting to introduce new ideas. Not new truths. They were true all along. But He's starting to reveal more of who he is and how he works. And in this passage, he's starting to reveal to his followers who the Spirit is and the role the Spirit takes. Look down, same passage, chapter 15, but look down at verse 26. The very end of this this chapter, but in the same conversation. And Jesus says, When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. All right, jump over to uh, chapter 16, verse 7, where he says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. In both these passages, Jesus calls the Spirit, the Spirit of truth, the Holy Spirit, Um, the helper. In some translations, it's the comforter. The Greek word is paraclete, which means somebody who comes alongside to aid. Somebody who comes alongside and and basically puts their shoulder up up under yours and and holds you up, right? Is there with you, is is tight, personal, close. They are a comforter. They are a helper. They are an encourager, right? The Spirit comes, and He is the one who comes alongside to aid us. So how important is the Spirit in the process of our being prepared for our future and permanent home? I mean, he's so important that Jesus says, it's actually to your advantage if I go away. I mean, what a crazy statement. He's looking at his disciples. How many of you have thought, man, if Jesus were just here? If Jesus would just show up here? You need to listen carefully. It was to your advantage that he went away. 
You are not at a disadvantage because Jesus is temporarily, physically out of our presence. You actually have a greater advantage because he sent his spirit, right? Instead of having me with you, he's saying to them, you will have the spirit in you. I will come and dwell you in the presence of the Holy Spirit. And that is to your advantage. Take a look down at verses 12 through 15 in chapter 16. He says, I still have many things to say to you, but you can't bear them now. All right, notice, progressive revelation of truth. We see that throughout Scripture. We see that in our own lives, and we see that in the story. God, it's not that things become true later. It's that God progressively reveals the truth as we can bear it, as it's part of His plan, right? So He says, there's more to come, verse 13. And when the Spirit of truth comes, He'll guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. And all that the Father has is mine. Therefore I said to you, he will take what is mine and declare it to you. See, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit all at work in the process of preparing us for our place. And the Spirit's job is to reveal truth to our minds. And through it, to free our hearts. Now, Jesus doesn't mention the Spirit as part of his um, metaphor. But as I was sitting in this and thinking about it, the reality is I just kind of was thinking that the Spirit very much is like the sap in the vine. That as we are connected to the vine, it is, it is through the sap that we are connected to life, right? The Spirit is sent by the vine to enliven us, to make the nutrients of truth come to life within us and change us. So what I want you to see is we have the whole Godhead working together to change us, to free us, to prepare us for our new place, to reconnect us with life, to make us free and fruitful. So what's our role in this? Well, in his metaphor, he says that we are the branches, right? And we have one job as the branches. And he says that is to abide in the vine. It's the only command he gives us in this passage, abide in me, right? And Jesus makes it very clear what he means by abide, right? We can get all mystical, and we can talk about oh, our spiritual connection and, 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 and you know, taking deep spiritual time. And, and, and not those things aren't important. I don't mean to belittle those things. They are actually uh, very port, important in, in private devotional experience and, and, and connecting with God. But he makes it clear what he means. And, and it's honestly something much more mundane and much more simple than we often make it out to be. Take a look at verses 9 and 10. In verses 9 and 10, He says, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. You guys, Jesus lays it out. Jesus obeyed his Father in everything. In everything. Right? And he says, I abide in his love because I obey his command. And then he says, you want to abide in my love? Obey me. Obey me. To abide is to obey. It's that simple. We can make it complex and, and we can try to make it mystical. And we can try to, but to abide is to obey. And when we choose not to obey, we choose not to abide. Now, I want to make very clear that this doesn't mean that your security in the vine is dependent on your obedience. Right? The branch is secure, not because it holds on to the vine, but because the vine holds on to it. Ultimately, what we mean by that is it's the work of Jesus that makes you secure, not your work for Jesus. 
right? He, he lived your life and died your death and rose again so that you could have a new identity. He took your guilt and your shame and your failure on him and he paid its full price and he gave you his perfect record in, in his place, right? So your gift to him was, was everything that's bad and his gift to you was a completely new record, a completely new name and grace, a continual new beginning. What we are talking about here is not your security. It's the work of Jesus that makes you secure, not your work for Jesus. We're not talking about your security in Christ's love. We're talking about your joy in Christ's love. Verse 11 makes that clear when he says, These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and your joy may be full. You guys, what's at stake here is not your security. It's your joy. A disobedient Christian will not be a joyful Christian. When we choose not to abide, we choose to rob ourselves of the joy of our salvation. When we choose not to obey, we are in essence choosing an idol over God and saying, I choose this act of disobedience. I believe it's going to give me life. I believe it's going to be the vine. I believe it's what's going to satisfy me, give me life, empower me, enliven me. And when we look to something other than God, we rob ourselves of the experience of our joy in God. A disobedient Christian will not be a joyful Christian. See, God's love for us is secured by the work of Jesus, and it's absolute. We are called on to believe in Jesus and rest in his performance, but that rest is not passive. It is an active pursuit of a deeper and true experience of God's love for us in Jesus. And it will be expressed in a growing desire to follow Jesus, to submit to Jesus, and ultimately obey Jesus. And that will result in increased fruit in our lives. What kind of fruit? All the fruit that's actually mentioned in this passage. You'll actually come to love people more. Not because they're more lovable, but because you're going to be filled with the love of Christ, the unconditional love of Christ. As as you move into more deeply the joy of your salvation, that joy is going to overflow, and you're going to actually find yourself loving people who are unlovable. And it's not going to be hard. It's not going to be this labor, this duty, this thing where you're, oh, you're just so noble. You love so-and-so, and they're a jerk right? It won't be about you at all. It's going to be the overflow of your experienced love of God. And, and, and so you're going to grow in the fruit of love. You're also going to grow in the fruit of holiness, right? In Galatians chapter 5, talks about, uh, Paul talks about the fruit of the Spirit. When we walk in the Spirit, which by the way is a metaphor that talks about the same exact thing, submitting our lives to the work of God, right? Abiding in the vine. When we walk in the Spirit, we will have the fruit of the Spirit. And he compares that to the works of the flesh. The works of the flesh are all the things that, that are just so easy for us. Right? Sin, um, like, like sexual sin and, and um, social sin where we judge people and we feel better than people and, and um, anger and um, jealousy and envy. Right? And he says the fruit of the Spirit is so different. See, the fruit of the Spirit, this thing that simply grows out of this relationship, are things like love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and and gentleness and self-control. All the things that ultimately make our joy more joyful. That's what holiness is. Holiness isn't this cold, rigid standard. Holiness, very simply, is being what God created us to be. It is being righteous in all the right ways. And it frees us to the joy that we were created to experience, right? So, so it grows us in the fruit of personal holiness, and it grows us to the fruit of mission. Woven throughout this passage is this idea that the Spirit is on mission, that Jesus is on mission, and He puts us on mission. Why? To love people who don't yet know Jesus and to share with them the love that we've received in Jesus so that they might also come to believe. We will grow in the fruitfulness of sharing Jesus with unbelievers. So when he's talking about us growing in fruitfulness, I want you to see that that he's really talking holistically. 
That this is the byproduct of our abiding in the vine, of our going deep in our relationship with Jesus. He changes us, and we will actually find ourselves growing more fruitful in all of these areas. Not because we're working harder at them, but because we see the Spirit of God shaping us and moving us and, and giving us new delights and desires that free us to grow in the fruitfulness of these things. So a couple pastoral points of encouragement for you as we kind of um, look at, at what we're supposed to do with this. First of all, I'm going to encourage you to, to respond quickly to the pruning. Hmm. This is not intuitive, nor is it easy, right? When, when something hurts, what do we do? We look away. We flinch. We try to get out of its presence, right? The reality is, I'm going to encourage you to lean in. Now, now I'm not encouraging you to be like masochistic. I'm not saying that you should go out there and just find pain and revel in it. All right, that's not my advice. What I'm saying is when pain comes into your life, instead of turning away from God, lean into God. Instead of, as we've said in previous messages, asking why, 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 which is an accusation against God, ask what, what, what. What are you doing? What do you want me to learn? How am I supposed to grow? What are you doing? What pruning are you doing? What discipline are you doing through this? Not punishment. Don't start asking, why are you doing this to me so I can fix it? Then you're thinking punishment. If I just go fix this thing, then God will stop disciplining me in this area. Discipline is training. So what are you training me for? See, the Father disciplines all of us for His glory and our good. And He works through our hardships and He works through our struggles to help us grow. And it doesn't feel good, but by faith, we know that it is good because we trust the Father. Here's the thing. Sometimes we may not know what he's doing. In fact, most of the time, (laughs) most of the time, we're not going to know what he's doing. And in those cases, we simply need to submit in joy. In those cases, what we do is, is we have a situation. Now, I'm not saying that if you, can change, you know, if you can change your situation, change it. If you can make choices that help alleviate the suffering, make those choices. I'm not talking about increasing your own personal pain, but I'm saying there are times there will be suffering in our life. We don't know why it's there. and We're really powerless to undo it. And I'm saying in those moments, choose to glorify God. Choose the path of humility, the path of joy, the path of endurance, and, and, and go deep, right, in your reliance, knowing that God's in control, And allow him to fill you once again with gratitude instead of you personally filling your heart with grumbling. Right? Lean in. Now, here's the thing. There are times when we don't know what God is doing. There are other times we do. (laughs) And those are almost worse. We know why the suffering is there. Um, There was a time when when I got sick. This was years and years ago. Um, And I mean, I was sick. Super high fever. Felt absolutely horrible, um, almost like delusional with, with, I mean, it was just bad. Um, and as I was rolling around in my suffering, I mean, crystal clear, like that, I remembered something that I didn't want to remember. I was driving one day to work. I remember the exact spot. I remember the, the billboard I was looking at. And in that moment, on my drive to work, I very clearly had a deep conviction that there was something in my life I was supposed to talk to Lauren about. But I didn't want to. I didn't want to. And I remember like struggling, like, really? 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 <laughs> nah. <laughs> That's, that, was, that, was the, that was the conversation. It was that simple. It was that clear, right? And as I'm rolling around on the bed, that moment like a movie screen in my head is replayed and I know why I'm sick. I know what God is doing. And so I called Lauren in. (laughs) She thought I was delusional. But I was like, no, really, I got to talk to you. (laughs) There's some things we have to talk about. And I'll tell you what, there was more joy in the end of that sickness than in the beginning. Sometimes we know what God is doing, right? See, God will speak to us in a, in a small, still voice, but he's going to raise the volume if you ignore him. <laughs> Nobody flunks out of the school of God. 
When he begins the change, he will bring it about. <laughs> and so you never flunk out. You just get to retake the lesson over and over, right? Because he's not going to leave you be. He loves you too much. He loves you too much. What he is preparing you for is, is so glorious. The change that he's doing in you is so good. He will not stop. And he will not let you resist him. So I'm going to encourage you to foster a quick response to conviction. Foster a quick response to, to confess when you sin, to confess when you hurt somebody, confess when you do something wrong. Don't lie. Don't cover it up. Don't, that's pride. That's you basically saying, I have to protect my record instead of you leaning instead on the record of Jesus. That's you saying, I have to protect my name instead of taking glory in the name of Jesus. That's you puffing yourself up instead of you being humble, right? Be quick to confess. Be quick to admit when you are wrong. Be, be quick to repent to God when he reveals areas in you and to you that, that are just wrong, that are sinful. Run to change as hard as it is so that God doesn't have to pull out the bigger clippers, you know, because he will. C.H. Spurgeon had a great way of putting it. I'm going to put the quote on the screen because it's a little wordy, but, but I want you to follow along. He said, the word, that is the Bible, is often the knife with which the great husbandman or the vine dresser, God the Father, prunes the vine. So he uses the word of God to prune us. And brothers and sisters, if we were more willing to feel the edge of the word and to let it cut away something that may be very dear to us, we should not need so much pruning by affliction. It is because the first knife does not produce the desired result that another sharp tool is used by which we are effectually pruned. When we resist the work of the Spirit in our lives... We provoke God to greater involvement <laughs> in the pruning process. We often become the source, in that case, of most of the suffering in our own lives. We become stiff-necked people. And a stiff-necked person has to be broken to become humble. A humble person is pliable. A humble person is receptive. A humble person has nothing to prove and, 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 and no one to impress. And as a result, a humble person receives correction. You guys, humility is strength and one of the greatest gifts of the gospel. When we fill ourselves with pride, when we resist the work of the Spirit, when, when we fight against the pruning work of God, we are inviting God into greater involvement in the discipline process. See, God often speaks to us first in the Word and then in our own circumstances. And I'm encouraging you, lean in in the areas of your suffering. Lean in to God and ask Him, what are you doing? What do you want me to learn? How can I glorify you in this? It is for your good and you can trust His hand in the pruning process because He never cuts away anything that doesn't need to go. Secondly, I'm going to encourage you, don't overestimate your fruitfulness. There are seasons of fruitfulness in the Christian life um, where we are growing, I mean, rapidly growing in joy and overflowing with, with, with our confidence, right? It happens a lot when someone first becomes a believer. In fact, you may have a similar experience. When I became a believer, um, I was at a Bible college. I went to this Bible college as an unbeliever, long story, um, but I was there to cause trouble and ultimately get kicked out. God had other plans. Uh, I actually opened my Bible and read it, and God broke my heart, and I came to faith, right? So when I arrived, I was a jerk. <laughs> I was a prideful, skeptical jerk, um, basically looking around at all these, oh, all you homeschooled kids, and, and you know, all you've been spoon-fed, and you're a bunch of sheep, and you're anti-intellectual, and, and I got all these great words, and I can argue with you and make you look and feel stupid, right? And then Jesus broke my heart, <laughs> and I became a believer, right? And uh, after I became a believer, I became a prideful jerk of a Christian, right? That same prideful heart just shifted, and I went from judging everybody from being dumb and anti-intellectual for being dumb and apathetic, 
Suddenly I'm like, why aren't you all on fire for God? Why are you guys so apathetic? I mean, I really was lit up. I mean, I was praying. I was reading my Bible. I was, I was being freed from strongholds. You know what I'm saying? Like, like God was actually miraculously delivering me from deep hell, broken patterns in my life. He was working forgiveness in my life in ways I didn't ever imagine. That was one of the most powerful experiences when I first became a believer was I suddenly realized I had the power to forgive people I thought I could never forgive and would never want to forgive. And so God was freeing me from strongholds and, 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 and freeing me from my anger patterns and from other sinful patterns um, and, and out of that joy. I mean, I just was all of a sudden, I mean, I was getting up at, I had my first class was at 6 a.m. I was getting up at 5 a.m. to pray and, and read my Bible and I was visiting homeless shelters and I was doing street ministry and I was judging everybody who wasn't doing everything I was doing. I'm basically saying I am up here having this mountaintop experience. Why aren't you? right? (laughs) Ironically, I was actually having a foothill experience. See, I thought I had climbed a mountain, but I had actually just learned to walk. And in my first few steps of of my spiritual walk and all of my heady giddiness, I thought I had actually arrived. I thought I was at the top of the mountain, right? I was experiencing the joy of first obedience, but I had no idea how much farther I had to go. It was real. You guys, it was real. The, the change was real, and it was joyful. But I had no idea how much more changing God had to do in my life or how hard it would be, and so I overestimated my own progress. I overestimated how much I had changed, and I overestimated my part in that change. I was taking pride in God's work as if it were my own. See, we need to take Jesus seriously when he says, apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from me, you can do nothing. You guys, he isn't exaggerating. (laughs) Apart from me, you can do nothing. That's true in every sense of the word. He's not only the one who created the world, he's the one that holds it together, right? It is the common grace of his his lenient power that allows you to eat and breathe and, and, and have your being. You have nothing that was not given to you. You have no power that is not lent to you by God. And all spiritual growth comes from the vine, not from you. It is not your work for God. It is God's work in you. And when we realize this, it should humble us. to a place of gratitude for grace. It should lead us to joyful humility, not a self-focused pride. Lastly, I don't want you to underestimate God's power. Don't overestimate your fruitfulness, but do not underestimate God's power. See, some of you are well past those first years of, of your salvation those first foothills of Christian growth and joy, right? You are, you are past that flush of first victory. You have tasted that first defeat that you didn't think would come. You, you have gotten a greater glimpse of, in fact, how broken you are and how much healing has to be done. God has given you a glimpse of your heart and you realize that you're not on top of the mountain. You are in the foothills of Mount Everest, and the change ahead of you is so much greater than the change behind you. And the change you want to see in your life isn't coming. Not easily and not quickly. And some of you may be feeling like, I'm not changing at all. I've just totally stagnated. I'm wondering if I'm even on the mountain. Right? Maybe you're going through a season where you lack joy, lack connection. You're not experiencing change. You keep struggling with the same sin over and over and over. And some of you may be sitting here thinking, man, I used to bear fruit, but not now. I wonder if I'm even a living branch. You guys, listen to me. The same passage that challenges our pride gives hope to our discouragement. Let Jesus' words comfort your heart. 
Apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from me, you can do nothing. You're powerless to change your own heart. You are powerless to be the change you want to see in the world. You are powerless to fix yourself, to change yourself in any real and meaningful and lasting way. You are powerless. So when Jesus commands us, abide in me, obey me. And then he turns around and says, by the way, you can't do it. What's going on there? Abide in me, apart from me, you can do nothing. Obey me, by the way, you can't. You don't have the power to do this. Why does he command what we can't achieve? You guys, it's because fruitfulness is not the primary goal. We're so obsessed with the fruit. We want the fruitfulness and we want it now. We want the joy. We want it now. We want the victory. We want it now. See, God is not as concerned with your fruitfulness as he is with your dependence. Because it's dependence that allows us to become fruitful. All true fruitfulness comes from humble, broken, dependence on the vine. See, our sin minimizes God's glory. It minimizes God's power, and it inflates our opinion of our own strength, our own power. And here's the thing, you guys, God's going to let you struggle with sin. To increase your desperation for His grace. Do you realize that when when you became a believer, God could have eradicated your sin in that moment? He could have said, there's no more sin in your life. It's gone. He left it there. Why? Because he has a purpose for it. God will use what he hates to produce what he loves. Do not underestimate the power of God. If you are going through a prolonged struggle with sin, Don't give in to the flesh. The flesh says, white knuckle it. You better fix it or you're going to be rejected. Or it says, just give in and wait until God does it for you. You can't defeat it, so you might as well just give in and and indulge, right? Both of those are the flesh basically trying to entrap you in your slavery. Dependence says, God is strong enough and I will wait. I will struggle in hope knowing that any progress I make in the struggle comes from the power of God and not my power for God. See, when God allows us to become desperate, he makes us more aware of our desperation, our need for him. It increases in our vision, his strength, and minimizes in our vision, our strength. See, the solution to this is to cry out in desperation and to get tunnel vision on the gospel. My need is greater than I knew but I have faith in a Savior that's greater than I thought. See, when we're desperate, we'll cry out in desperation. We'll actually discover humility. It's so foreign to our sinful hearts. It is so unnatural to our prideful state. God will allow suffering. God will even allow the presence of sin in our lives. God will allow seasons of unfruitfulness for the purpose of increasing the fruitfulness later. Our job is not to fix ourselves. Our job is not to produce fruit. Our job is to abide in the vine, which means we refocus and refocus ourselves on his sufficiency in spite of our deficiency, his strength in spite of our weakness, his love in spite of our self-centeredness, his faithfulness in spite of our self-centeredness. We keep going back to the gospel over and over and over remind ourselves that we are loved, we are secure, we are whole because of who he is and what he's done, not who we are and what we've done. And we discover tiny bit by tiny bit the beauty of dependence. Jesus is the vine giving life. The father is the vine dresser pruning and healing. The spirit is the sap changing us from the inside out. He has prepared a place for us and he will prepare us for that place. You guys, as we move into our time of response, I'm going to put some 
questions on the, on the screen and, and ask you to pray and let God speak to you in it. Um, we have some worship response cards in our bulletins. We would love for you to fill that out if you have prayer requests or if you're uh, a guest with us. We'd love to know you were here. Let us know how you found us um, and, and if you have prayer requests. Um, we'd love to pray with you and for you. If you're a first-time visitor, we have a gift for you at Connection Point. Um, so just visit the table, and uh, we'll be happy to, to... We just want to honor you for coming and visiting with us. So as we move into response, let me put some questions up. First of all, are there areas you know you are simply not obeying God? The Spirit of God will <laughs> awaken you to that. Are there areas? And are you willing to let um, God, in a sense lead you in those areas? Are you willing to submit? Secondly, are you embracing your helplessness in your struggle against sin with prayer? Instead of running from your helplessness, instead of being angry at your helplessness, instead of trying to cover your helplessness, are you actually allowing that to produce within you a greater dependence, a greater desperation, turning to God in prayer, coming in that position of humility and dependence, pleading with God to do in you what you can't do for yourself? And thirdly, are you reminding yourself daily that your Savior is greater than your circumstances? Daily. That God's strength is greater than your weakness. His faithfulness is greater than your self-centeredness. That He's more committed to your good than you are. And He will glorify Himself in you for your good and His glory. Are you reminding yourself daily that you have a God who is preparing you for home? Let me pray for us. We'll go into a time of response. And then we'll share communion together in a moment. Father God, we thank you that you are a good and gracious God who loves us, is committed to us, is redeeming us and changing us. That you are committed to taking us home and you are committed to making us worthy of home, of freeing us into the beauty of your nature and your character that we can be what you created us to be. Father, I pray for my friends, especially those that are in times of real and intense and prolonged suffering. And I ask, Lord, that you would meet them, that your spirit would quietly but powerfully speak to them that they are your child and that this suffering is for their good, that the suffering itself, while it may be evil, will be used by you to produce a weight of glory. I pray for my friends that are struggling with areas of obedience. That you will give them faith, conviction, and confidence. Knowing that as they obey, you honor obedience. That they can make the right choices and trust you with whatever comes out of it. And Lord, I pray for all of us. That we would have hearts quick to respond to grace. Quick to respond to your spirit. 